Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so uh, last time we were talking about uh, So I showed these slides. Let's go back and take a look at some of these. Um, so this is Bernie's Red Jungle Foul. Um, one of the ways, in fact, but as an aside, people take a look at the movement of humans, uh, human migration, is actually looking at where chickens are. Because every culture eats chicken pretty much, except when they can't exist like up in the far north. Uh, and they all seem to come from this breed. So you can actually look at where chicken bones show up and look at the, the, the genetics of it, the genetic, genetic clock. And you can actually see that literally all the chickens come from the Burmese Red Jungle Valley, which is kind of cool. Um, it's one of the pieces of evidence apparently that we uh, migration, uh, how people migrate. <laughs> um, so the animal starts out by fluffing up dust. And then it's nose doesn't associate. Um, and then there's a bill scratch that gets the dust up here. And then really, actually, the young animal almost builds up. You can't really see in that picture, but almost the cloud. I was mentioning this, that with a, uh, if you're using something like sawdust in a lab, you can actually, it almost looks like a cloud of sawdust. So it's, it's really alive. It takes a good 20 minutes. Eventually, the animal shakes it all off. Um, and as I said, it's pretty complicated behavior. You can see here from this diagram that we've got all these different sort of behaviors that are part of the dust dusting behavior system, as, as uh, an ethologist would say. And it ends up with the body shake, which is when it shakes its whole, all the dust, dust which has got now dirt and uh, oil from the feather all attached to it. It all comes off and the animal's clean. Uh, as an aside, if you ever get a chance to see a talk by Jerry Hogan, who is now retired, so it seems unlikely, but if you're, he's a world expert on dust bathing, he does a great impression of chicken dust bathing. Uh, speaking of Hogan, uh, Bersengard, Hogan, and Kreut uh, found that jungle fowl actually don't need dust to dust bathe. Now, this is the case, though, only if you have um, the jungle fowl were raised without any dust, and they're raised on a wire mesh floor. Okay? So they have to be raised without any dust at all. What happens then is there's a circadian rhythm to this. And every day around uh, 4 o'clock, <coughs> what would the sun be around 4 o'clock? <coughs> uh, they start to dust bathe. But they don't dust bathe. They do a vertical wing shake. They do a bill scratch on a wire mesh floor. That's why there's this dotted line here. It actually isn't necessary than the animal to have the stimulus of dust. It's actually internal stimulus, which is its internal clock. Yeah, rhythm. Now, if you take them and put them in an environment with dust, they will do it properly. However, if they have never seen dust before, they will do it without dust. 
Now, if you have the birds that are brought up with dust, they learn how to dust bathe as kids and learn this point the right word. Yeah. As kids, yeah. Kid chickens. As chicks. They will not dust bathe, even though their biorhythm says, the biorhythm says, it's 4 o'clock, you dust bathe, but they don't. They only do it if the dust is there. So they'll wait a few days until you give them dust. Then they dust bathe like crazy. Kind of like, you know, you come back from camp and you haven't had a shower in three days? That kind of thing. So they don't need the dust for the behavior to develop. They don't need the dust to re- as a releasing stimulus, as it's called mythology, to make the behavior happen. But if they originally, when they were young, had dust, they always needed dust this is one of those interesting phenomena in animal behavior uh, that happens quite a bit where you get what we call suboptimal conditions, but the behaviors still develop. Right? Birds, that, songbirds will sing a song if they don't, if they've never heard a song. They just don't sing a very good song. They don't sing properly. They put out something called subsong. Same kind of idea. Um, in 1993, Hogan and Van Boxel, it's Francis Van Boxel, she was a master's student in Jerry's lab, uh, found that dust bathing was already rhythmic at 14 days post hatch. So these little, and I don't know if you've ever seen a juvenile chicken, it's the ugliest animal you've ever seen. Little chicks are great, they're like little fluffy balls of tweeting and they're beautiful. And then in about 10 days, they're horribly ugly animals. Right? Think about how you looked right when you started puberty, your voice was changing, and you were getting all tall and gangly, and then turned yourself into a chicken. There you go. So she's got these chickens, and they're dust bathing already 14 days post hatch. Interestingly enough, as babies, they do it twice a day at noon and 4 o'clock. But you know, they'll wash your kid a lot. Poor kid. It's also interesting, by the way, that everybody that has anything to do with dust bathing somehow is connected to Holland. I don't know. It's some kind of conspiracy. They're all Dutch names. I find them a little odd. You might say, Holland, yeah. But he's a postdoc in Holland. And they're a Dutch woman. Just saying. <laughs> I don't understand why. It's crazy. You got out Dutch. She's that weird. Austin Powers. <laughs> kind of fixed action patterns, as we call them, in animals, a lot of their behavior is this. Right? I talked about the, the cat looking for a nipple, that kind of thing. 
I love mythology. By the way, if you like mythology school, you should take animal behavior. I have not made up the roster, maybe decided it for next year, but almost certainly Psych 3106 animal behavior will be offered because it's usually offered two years. Um, we can then take a, a series of fixed action patterns, it's called a reaction chain. Um, you can tell it's a reaction chain on a fixed action pattern if the animal can stop the behavior. Once a chicken starts dust bathing, it doesn't stop dust bathing. They keep doing it until the whole behavior sequence is finished, until the whole fixed action pattern is done. But sometimes they might keep a couple of fixed action patterns, put them together, and they can stop after one fixed action pattern. Then we know we have what's called a reaction chain. Now I've reduced all the ethology I wish on my slides, which isn't really fair, just like I did with all of history the other day. But the important thing to, to note about this is we have a lot of behavior in animals. People like Skinner, especially, uh, and Pavlov will point to, and certainly John Watson, believe that pretty much all behavior was learned, and it isn't. There's a lot of stuff that, that, that you're hooked up with. And I mentioned the other day, no one has to teach you how to walk. No one, unless you, you know, have a problem or something, but as a baby, your toddler, no one teaches toddlers how to walk, right? There's other things you have to do as a parent that are hard, but that's not one of the babies that eventually they get up and they learn to walk. You don't have to teach your kid a language. They just start talking. When they hear the language you've been speaking, they speak your language, right? We have us humans, other animals, have a whole lot of behavior that's already in there. So you have to keep that in mind. Whenever you're looking at something and saying, is this a learned behavior, you have to look at it and say, well, I'm not sure. Some things are hooked, they're hooked up that way. You can look at some of the greatest ethological work was done on herring gulls. Much of it by Gary Hogan's wife, Lee. See? And they're all Dutch. And what Lee found was, uh, along with other people, uh, like Tim Bergen, you know, some of these really unimportant people, as a joke, Tim Bergen's really important. Um, and ethology. Looking at herring gulls and how they retrieve their eggs. So, because a lot of what gulls do is they, they, they nest communally, okay? They take these sort of nesting grounds. And what can happen is the, the, the eggs can roll away. And when the egg goes away, you've got to go get the egg, right? How do they recognize their own eggs? How do they recognize if it's an egg? That's the question that was asked. That's an egg. When you come to think of it, actually, quite an interesting question. So what Lee Hogan and, and Nico Tinberger and all these guys did is they made fake eggs and changed the color and they changed the shape. And it's interesting because they are more likely, herring gull females are more likely to go after a perfectly round ball that is blue and white speckled rather than go after a blue egg. Because it looks more like an egg to them than their own egg does. They're paying attention to roundness and to dots, even though a lot of their eggs are completely blue or completely white. Very few of them are blue and white speckled. That's what's called a supernormal stimulus. It's like the ultimate, it's more egg-like than any egg you've ever seen. It's the platonic state of herring gull eggness in the herring gull heaven. A little Play-Doh thing I went on there. So that happens quite a bit in mythology. 
So you, with a lot of animals, they'll, 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 they'll take a look at something that, they'll, they'll respond to something that actually isn't there, isn't, doesn't exist in nature, because it has all the characteristics that they're, they are sort of hooked up to look for. That's kind of neat. Okay. Questions about that? Okay, habituation. Hey, look, it's actually a learning topic now. It's almost October, I thought I had to get on. Okay, we can define habituation pretty easily. It's decrease the strength of the response after the <coughs> presentation of the discrete stimulus. Okay, so it's kind of like getting used to something. As a mixture, sort of. Because when we think about getting used to something, like, I don't know, the sound of the, uh, yeah, the projector, you know, the, the fan. If you stop and listen, yeah, the fan's going. You get used to that pretty quickly, you completely ignore it. But that's not a discrete stimulus, right? That's not individual stimulus. That's, it's constant. Okay? So it's not like when you go, um, so it's not sensory adaptation. Right? Because you eventually get used to, to, to sensory things. Like, I don't notice until I think about it that I'm wearing socks. I don't feel them. They just, oh yeah, it's socks on. Which is good, because you know, you've got a lot of animal socks on. Or fatigue, you just get tired. Right? It's not that either. It can't be those two things. So this isn't like when some of you go to their house and they have a very loud fridge and you notice it. Or this isn't like when you go and many of you now have been away from home for a couple of years and you go home and you smell your house and you think, wow, our house smells weird. And actually, no, that's how your house smells. It's just that you, you got used to it over the years. Sensor adaptation, you go home and you just like, most of the hell's mom been cooking since I left for university? Same stuff she was cooking before, so now she has more money, she doesn't have to buy your freaking food. She's got to pay for your school, it all balances out the end of it. Like I've said, everybody else's house smells funny and yours has no smell at all. Actually, no, it's not true. But that's sensitive adaptation. That's getting used to something. That's not what this is. This is repeated stimuli. There's repeated discrete stimuli that the animal stops attending to, stops reacting to. Should say attending, stops reacting. It is stimulus specific. So in that case, it's kind of again, that's why I say kind of like getting used to something, because you will notice, you won't notice that you have a loud fridge, but if you had a loud dishwasher, you'd notice that. If it, when it kicks in. There's two responses that are used typically here. Uh, let's say you're doing this with rats. This is the oriented response or the startle response. Okay, so it's the oriented response or the startle response. So what happens when you make one of these stimuli, and it usually tends to be something that's going to startle somebody, it's like, like that, and the animal looks over. It's, that's orienting. Or startle, you can measure startle a lot of different ways. Right? So it's an orienting response or a startle response in a more complicated animal than we'll talk about actually today. And there is stimulus generalization here. So let's say we're doing this with a tone, and our tone was 440 hertz, which is a, a C of some sort, I think. I don't know. I just know 440 from the guitar tuners in my house when I was a kid. So let's say it's 440 hertz. 
Now, we look at a mount of startup. After repeated stimulations of four, I think that's middle C, 440. Okay? So repeated stimulations like that, the animal stops startling. So we're going to look at here on the x-axis, or sort of the y-axis, is the amount of startle. And we're going to get, this is after a whole bunch of presentations, we're going to get none. Okay, we get no response. Then what we can do is we can try 430, 450, and then so we're going by what, uh, 10, so 4, 60, or 20, <laughs> or 20. <laughs> Or 10, boy, I get tired of that, by the way. <laughs> wow, it's April 20th. Great. Everybody say 420. <laughs> it's just tiring. I don't care what your views are on marijuana. I think it should be legal. That's a whole different thing. It doesn't matter. But don't you go 420. You look like an idiot. Okay. A little rant there. I'll be back. If you look at now of startle, it goes up. It goes up. Now, I don't know, in fact, to be honest with you, I don't actually know if this kind of change of 10 hertz at a time would present exactly the, the slope of those curves. But I know you would get, if you turned your head upside down, don't you look silly, you will see something that approaches a normal curve. Because that's what you get. Okay? So you get responding, but you get some responding at, say, 430. And 450, the cool thing is they should be the same. They should be symmetrical here, and then same here, same here. And eventually, when you get far enough away, the animal, because it's stimulus specific, because it's stimulus specific, the animal should start respond completely. Okay? So. This Thompson and Spencer figured a lot of this stuff out. They did this with uh, different animals. Uh, the uh, aplesia, which are uh, like slugs, sea slugs. Okay, this shows up in everything. So, for example, as I mentioned, that hurt. I had no depth perception, and I just. Uh, Stimulus, so we had stimulus generalization. It's gradual with time. What do I mean by that? I mean, at the beginning, the animal responds with a big startle. And then there's less startle and less startle and less startle. So again, if we were to graph this out, we have time on this axis, an amount of startle over here. This is like, again, discrete trials. We get a lot of startling and less and less and less and less approaching zero. And eventually the animal doesn't respond at all. Now, to be startling with the aplesia, you actually sort of pulp them and they withdraw their gill. You can do that with a little spurt of water, you can actually touch them, but stick them with a little bit of water and they withdraw their gill. Now, what we'll do, so this is over time. Does that remind anybody of exactly the same shape as the uh, forgetting curve that Eddie has thought that? It's also the same shape as a learning curve, except we can go more learning. Well, more learning means less responding. More learning means less responding. Now, if we withhold the stimulus, so now we're going to stop for 10 minutes. And again, when I'm pleasing, you might stop for 10 minutes. If you're going with a rat, you might wait a day. You come back. 
So now we've waited some time, so what I'll do is I'll bring the axis up here in order to start over. So in here we've got a waiting period. We get some responding. Note though we get quite a bit less responding, and then the animal learns very quickly. We get less responding than we used to get. Okay? And the animal learns quickly, what we're getting is called sages. That's what Adam Gauss found. Remember, he found that when you he relearned those lists of constant about constant trigrams, that the next time around it was easier to learn. You can take this to a long enough point, by the way, a long enough sort of break, that the amount of responding on trial one is back to where it was before. That, that, that can be done. But you will still get faster learning. So it might be wait a couple of days or with a, a sea slug, maybe half an hour instead of 10 minutes, and you will get complete recovery of the response. But the learning, so being the the lack of responding actually is the learning. The learning will happen more quickly. This, the curve will have more of a, a tight slope, and it will approach zero much more quickly. It will uh, hit zero. Make sense? You good with that? Okay. quicker the learning happens. Okay? That's all that means. The quicker the learning happens. <coughs> yeah, obviously, this is going, or, or if you're using a plesia, the more intense, uh, the more pressure you put in the water you're spr spraying at. Fine. Doesn't matter where you're using. Yeah, obviously, this comes to a point where you can get ridiculous, you're not going to get any learning. If you play a sound so loud that destroys the rat's eardrums, it's not going to do it anymore. That's clearly ridiculous, right? But within normal ranges of stimulus intensity, the louder, for example, typically these are sounds with more complicated ones, the louder, the quicker it learns. When you think about that, that's not that far off from learning the way we think about it with any animal as well. Because if you have a more intense stimulus, it's easy for an animal to learn about it. A pigeon will start pecking at a key much more quickly if the key is brighter than if it's dimmer. Okay? So this is cool. We have this. By the way, this shows up in every animal ever tested, all of them. It also even happens in, like, things that aren't animals. <laughs> you get this in Ziba. <coughs> You get this in like various protists, all kinds of animals, uh, non-animals, all kinds of other things that are even us. Don't you have nervous systems? That's cool. This is a pretty old set of behavior. I'm not saying it works the same way in the other people because we have nervous systems, but the behavior shows up, which is pretty cool. <coughs> Alright, so questions so far. So we got 
I should put generalization first because it makes sense not to go first. Doesn't matter. We got generalization. We've got savings, right? We've got allowing the easier to learn. The stimulus, the response will occur if we remove the stimulus. Now, one of the neat things we have here, and this is why this actually should be last because it's the most complicated thing to understand, is something called overlearning. Um, what happens after this curve hits zero? Well, you can't respond any more, any less than not responding. So now the way we're measuring learning can't show any more learning even if there is learning. Right? Because we've got to a point now where the way we're measuring is how much they startle response. We'll go with the rat startle response or how much orienting, whatever you want. It can't orient any less than not orienting. But is it still learning? Is it still learning? Well, it might be. In fact, theoretically, what's happening is this curve hits here and it crosses and it keeps going. We get what's called habituation below zero. was the name of a power trio I was in back in the 70s. Oh, I still think it's a great band name, though. Yeah, we're sort of a poppy sort of band. You know, like, habituation below zero is a pretty good band. What happens when they don't respond to your music? What happens when? When they don't respond to your music. Well, they wouldn't, because I, I'm, I'm, I can play bass, but I'm not a bass player. <laughs> My brother is the big shot. I want a Juno Award. Different. Play anything. My dad and my brother needed a bass player. So they taught me to play bass. And I played for a while, and then my brother picked up my bass when he was about 13, and he was better than me already. So I stopped. <laughs> he's great, he's always good to play anything. You know these people? Pick up an instrument. Someone pick up a violin once and just play it. You walk into the grade seven in London, you get you play musical instruments and music like you're assigned an instrument, right? And you pick your instrument and you picked up a trombone and started playing the rocking theme. And the teacher said, How'd you what have to do that for a couple of years? How'd you do that? You know how to play trombone? No, you just, you just play it. Really, really annoying. Really annoying. So my band would suck. I was in a band with my brother for like two weeks, and I realized I'm not very good, and I don't want to stand in front of people making mistakes. So, there. I'm not bitter. <laughs> my brother is a, teaches, uh, actually, he's a Maui producer in Nigeria, actually, teaches record uh, production and engineering at Central College. And, uh, he's won an award, teacher award, and they're from high school. That professor brought it back to high school. Now, I have awards, I don't think awards, who the hell am I? So PhD, it doesn't matter. My little brother, you know, I thought I was about 12, Dan was my little brother, and then it became poor. Are you Dan's older brother? I'm like, nobody, nobody gives me anybody else. He looks just like Joel McHale, too. Joel McHale's a class. It's creepy for much of us to Joel McHale. He looks just like him. Anyway, 
habituation below zero. How would we measure this? Well, it's, you know, like, like, theoretically, that's what should be happening. But how do we measure this? Well, the way we do it, in fact, I hinted at it before, is we withhold the, is we withhold the stimulus for a while, and then see if it comes back, and then we see the length of time. Oh, did I draw this? Oh, I did, look. If we add this to how far this is down, we get this much responding. So this distance here plus this distance here equals that. So we can tell how much the animal responded less than not responding at all by changing how much time we wait between withholding the stimulus and returning it, and then you look, you look like you're confused. Yeah. And I, this is hard. This is kind of hard to get your head around. So I'll, I'll explain it a couple more times. What the animal's doing is its nervous system is still learning stuff, even though it can't respond anymore. Right? It's the same thing. Think about this with professional hockey players, which aren't playing. Professional hockey players, they still practice. I got a feeling Sidney Crosby probably knows how to skate. I'm just guessing. Pretty sure he knows how. I don't think he needs puck handling drills. I think he knows how to handle the puck. But he practices all the time. They all practice all the time. Guys that fly airplanes, pilots, they, they're also called pilots. It's a technical term. I don't want to, you know, get too technical. They know how to fly. Yet they actually fly in simulators all the time. They practice. Because even though their responding can't get any better, they're still learning. Their nervous system is still storing the information somehow. This is what's happening here. So the animal can't respond any less than not responding at all. But it may be the case that its nervous system is still storing this information somehow. And the way we get at that is after we get the habituation below zero, or we think we do, theoretically, we just keep giving it the, and we don't get any response, we don't get any response, we do it a whole bunch of times, then we wait a little bit of time, we do it again, the, and we compare that to a group where we stopped right here. We didn't do any more trials, and we get less responding, therefore, more learning in the group that has been overtrained. Does that make sense? Does that help? This sounds like it's conditioned. It is conditioned. It's like it's a situation. It's a kind of conditioning. It's kind of yes, right. Like, you said yeah. right. Like hope. Less <laughs> responding, so more learning. Yes, less in the, in the group that has been given trials after it stops responding. <laughs> One group we're going to give no trials after the stops. Well, let's say it takes 10 trials. But for the sake of argument, say it takes 10 trials. Animal stops responding, we quit. Other group, we give it 15 trials. So at 10, it just keeps, it's not responding anymore. We keep giving it the lab notes. Now we're going to compare those two groups. We're going to give them the stimulus. We'll wait a little bit of time because we have to make, let the stimulus come back, let the response come back. And we're going to give the animal the, 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 the stimulus back. Right? And we're going to see if it gets a response. We're going to get less responding for more learning in the group that has been given the habituation below zero trials. I get that. But yes. If you model that curve. Yes. 
it would actually work out. Yeah, well, you, well, the thing is, you can't actually do this. This is all completely a guess. I, I know, I know. Yeah. But theoretically, yes. it would equal the same amount of yes. response. Yes, that's what you should, should happen. Is. is there a minimum, like I'm assuming if you did it right after, you'd still get no response? Yes, exactly. So that, is there a set delay that... It would depend on the task and the other species. But the maximum would be theoretically combining. Yes, two. exactly. Then, no. You okay? Yeah. Make sense now? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Okay, so you did your first trial, it's over learning, blah, blah, blah. Yep. You did your second trial, it doesn't respond at all, does that still count as learning? Well, that's what we're showing you, actually, the animal is still learning because when we compare that animal to one that we start with at zero, it actually responds less, so it still works. So it doesn't respond at all, not less, not at all. Well, we have, so we have to wait a little bit of time. Because we're not going to get any response whatsoever. Okay. So we, we do this, and we get this over learning. And I mentioned this. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I was actually going to say, so that's kind of like when you've got the habituation below zero, it's yes. kind of like your response to the refrigerator noise. Uh, You're not responding anymore. It's there. You know it's there. If you, yeah, but just remember that the refrigerator noise is not habituation. Right. Right. It's sensory adaptation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So is that what's really actually happening then is more of a sensory adaptation? No, no. What's happening here because they're discrete stimuli and because we get stuff that looks that follows all these other things that are that are common to all kinds of learning is that we can call this learning. We can see the animal still learning even though it can't respond anymore. The same thing as I mentioned with professional any high performance actors, where your ability to read, you can just read. You probably learn to read more when you read, but you can't get your reading speed any faster than it's going to be when you're reading all the time. Not a great example, but I mean... I understand that. <laughs> you know, uh, so this is, as I said, and this, in fact, we, we talk about overtraining happening with uh, all kinds of learning. Is this where fatigue happens? Oh, fatigue, good player role, and of course, we're, not, we're going to factor that out. We're going to make sure that we already know that how much will be too much kind of thing. But I mean, we get this in complicated kinds of learning, like, I mean, yeah, you can think about maybe, well, I can't play hockey or fly an airplane. Those, once you learn them, they're, they're implicit motor tasks, you just do them. But even things that are sort of cognitive tasks, we can think of things like doing math problems. If you haven't done it in a long time, and this is one of those things that happens when you have kids and eventually they start, they hit about grade six and you start getting word problems, you haven't done one of those in a while. And you look and you go, whoa, okay. And it takes you five minutes to do the first one. And then the next one takes four minutes. And eventually you look at it and you go, how do you not understand this? What are you, stupid? That's, that's bad parenting. You're just a little here. You don't call your kids stupid. But the thing is, you relearn it. But when you're a kid, you learn new work problems all the time, all the time. There's a reason they actually overtrain you. There's a reason that we give you all these exercises in stats class that are the same over and over and over again. It's so innovation becomes, you overlearn it. You, get, you know it so well, you actually can't show any more learning. Right? And this happens all the time. This happens to humans all the time. in very complicated things. And this happens to things with, an aplesia has about 2,000 neurons. And it happens with that thing, too. And nematode happens with nematodes. They have two neurons. Simplest thing with the nervous system. So this actually is a pretty cool phenomenon. So this is a thousand steps. You see how old this is? This is something people have studied for a long time. These are sort of the rules of habituation. That 
is an ecclesia. They aren't that big. They're picture in scale. They're not pixelated like that in real life Now, Kendall, in 2000, he did this work much before that, he won the Nobel Prize for this. This is another person who we psychologists say, yeah, he's a psychologist. Well, no, not really, but we like him. By the way, uh, if you look, if you want to hear him talk about some of this work, uh, a podcast, a friend of mine does called Futures in Biotech, just Google for it, and you'll find a great interview with Mary Kendall. Uh, he's... Uh, it's, a, it's a show that I want sometimes, it's a shame you couldn't find me in that other sort of education, because I usually come on to the behavioral ones, because my buddy Mark, who hosts this show, he's a molecular biologist of some sort, he doesn't really do this kind of, doesn't understand this, but as he'd say, if he was good. But I would have talked to him, it would have been cool, I haven't done that before. Anyway, check it out though, if you want to listen to it. So Michael Campbell, did this work on the gill withdrawal reflex, as I mentioned in ecclesia. Folk in ecclesia seems to me sounds dirty, but is it isn't. It's one of those many things in English. That's how you say it. So that was making up some PowerPoints, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you can say almost anything in English. I think it works as well in French. The folk in ecclesia, by the way, that's not my joke, that sounds dirty. It's Cheryl B. Dunn's joke. She said that. Sounds dirty. So I'm just saying. It's a gill withdrawal reflex. The, why do you work with something this simple? Because the pathway is a sensory, bunch of sensory uh, neurons to a bunch of motor neurons. It's not like this is going to a complicated brain. The thing has 2,000 freaking neurons. Okay, so it's not like this is. Oh, then it's processed in the occipital lobe. No, 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 no. This is. This thing doesn't have lobes. Right. This thing has 2,000 freaking neurons. So it's a simple model for learning. Okay. What ends up happening is, in fact, the sensory neuron, after uh, habituation happens, literally is releasing less neurotransmitter, and that's acetylcholine, for those of you who are scoring at home, into the synapse from the sensory to the motor neuron. The learning actually is happening at the synapse, which is really, really, really cool. And you can see why he won that prize. That's awesome. There's actually an increase in the calcium current. Um, those of you who have taken brain behavior know that there are these uh, voltage-sensitive uh, channels at the axon hill, right when the neuron fires, right? Okay, and there's calcium. They're sensitive. There's these calcium channels, and they're sensitive to changes in. The current, that, that's what they detect that we've got depolarization to make the cell fire. What happens actually is uh, a calcium um, channel is made up of like seven, or it's probably seven. <laughs> it's, 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 it's always magically seven. It's, something, it's six or seven different um, subunits. And there's one subunit that actually makes the chip, that is the channel itself, the voltage sensitive. Ion gate that allows calcium in, and it stops making as many of those parts of that ion chain. 
So the animal is actually, the, animal, the, synth, the neuron is actually doing the learning, the individual neuron. And it's actually changing its cellular physiology. That should give you little shivers. That's how cool that is. Obviously, no one but me. It's pretty damn neat. So that's cool, and you think to yourself, okay, did everybody say that, by the way, before I come up? Does that make sense? You okay? Well, that's just going to happen. It's something simple. It happens like that in cats, too. <clears throat> With cats, you can start a reflex, loud noise, take a look at the, is the sensory neuron, what's happening here when it releases neurotransmitters, it's actually releasing those neurotransmitters. That's really neat. <clears throat> that's really neat. And it's also true in nematodes, by the way, if I throw that in, but it's a skeletal ecclesia and Dale Nobel Prize, 2000. Um, okay. It happens in nematodes, it happens in ecclesia, and it happens in cats all the same way. I'm going to go to the limb and controversially say it also happens like that in humans. It's not controversial, clearly, because obviously, if it happens in all those animals, pretty good common ancestor there would be the first animal. This is a, such a general process that this is called the universal learning paradigm. Uh, you can study habituation in any animal because it shows up in every animal and it works exactly the same in every animal. The processes are the same. The graphs all look the same. The response will be different. You know, you're not gonna, it's hard to startle a nematode. They don't go, oh, sorry. They have 302 neurons. The people that are doing the genetics behind this kind of stuff, people who are doing behavior genetics, well, you say nematodes typically because we know the whole genome is all mapped and all that stuff. And know every uh, circuit, every real circuit. They'll mess with single genes to mess with learning. And that is pretty damn That is pretty neat. Questions about that? If this was graduate school, we could do a whole course of habituation. However, it is not. So we'll move on. <laughs> so. Let's change the bag. By the way, you might look at the website DaveBrodbeck.com, that website again, DaveBrodbeck.com, and see that it looks like there's only four topics left. Yeah, and it takes two freaking months. Okay, so don't worry. It starts to slow down. Because, yeah, it's been a real just fireball of excitement so far. You just can't hold it. It's like, it's, like, it's like a five ticket ride at freaking Disneyland. Okay. Let's talk about Pavlovian or classical. This is what we typically think of when we use the word condition. It looks a lot like George Bernard Shaw, but it's actually from Pavlov. Pavlov was working on digestion. I don't mean he just had some lunch, a little bit of pork that he was digesting it. 
That was kind of funny. You really shouldn't. That was, that was not a bad joke. Oh, Say um, He was studying the digestive system in, in uh, dogs. What a Nobel Prize for his work on the digestive system of dogs. So he's like, I'm very good at this. We'll keep studying digestion in dogs. It is fun. I am a scientist. He didn't even speak English. I'm just. So I'm making it sound like Ishtvan. Do you want the dogs to behave? It involves conditioning the direction of reflexes. It was the clue, just away from the view. And it's got me doing it. So what he found is he had he had automatic feeding machines. This is totally this is I love science. And I don't just love it because it's the best way to understand the universe, but that's up there. Um, Another great reason I love is so much stuff is discovered by accident. This guy's got gear hooked up on these dogs. And he's got automatic feeding machines. Which you might imagine is some sort of steampunk Luke Goldberg thing. This is like 1905. And meat powder goes into the dog's mouth. And it makes a noise, because it's 1905 or something, 03. Makes a noise. And that happens. Now he's studying, he was studying digestion, he was also later on studying this, the salivary part of digestion. Part of what, when you digest stuff, uh, you know, we're also mammals, when you spit, there's, a, there's a, an enzyme in your spit called salivary amylase, right? You probably, you probably did this in like grade 10, right? They give you a soda cracker, and you sit it in your mouth, you don't chew it, you just let your spit wash over it, which is kind of gross. But eventually it starts to break down the starch you use with potato to reject it with that. Or rice, but it has to be something that has to be not very salt on it and be flavorful, you know. So an unsalted soda cracker works really well. You sit it in your mouth, and eventually the starch starts to get broken down by salivary amylase and the sugars, and it starts to be sweet. Right? So if you really want, you're having a sugar, you know, craving. And all you let is, 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 is crackers, just spit on them. Start to break down the sugars. Or just go to the corner store and buy some freaking Oreos. But they have delicious trans fats. So he's studying this, and he's actually got these dogs hooked up to these automatic feeding machines, and he's got tubes ready to the dogs, like, smell here, right down here. He was not a funny little clever Russian man reading a bell and feeding his doggies. We have this idea. Oh, come here, doggy, I will ring bell and give you food. That's not what was happening. He had lots of dogs with holes drilled into the bottom of their snouts. They were collecting spit. And suddenly the game had taken an awful turn. So one day, this story goes to Pavlov, mentions that one day the, the, somebody forgets, one of the lab assistants forgets to put the food meat powder in machine, uh, but the, he realizes he's still collecting saliva. What is going on? Why is saliva still happening without food? I don't understand. When you put food in your mouth, you salivate. That's any animal, any mammal. It's a reflex. You're hooked up that way. Right? You put pretty much anything in your mouth, you put a, a piece of paper in your mouth, you'll salivate. Okay? 
It's part of digestion. Pavlov was correct on that. So that's a reflex. That's up there with, you know, when you touch it, put your hand, finger in the baby's hand, they just grasp it. Right? And hold on so tight, you actually almost lift the baby like that. There you go, this. It's a reflex. I fucked up that. If you bang your knee in the right place, right? If you do that thing, I'll do this. See if I can do it. Get the right place. <laughs> wow, that one really worked. It makes your leg move. Right? You can't help it, it just happens. It's a reflex. You're hooked up that way. So that's what you're studying, and then it turns out that we can redirect. This is what Pavlov discovers. You can redirect that reflex, he said. We can change it from just being from food. He's not saying that you put food, it doesn't work anymore. He's saying we also now get when you put, you can make your sound. People salivate. You can make a dog in this case. But if I get you right now to imagine a food you like, you will notice you start salivating. That's exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same process. And he said, what we've done here is we've redirected a reflex. We've said that we don't just get salivation from food, we also get salivation from some previously neutral stimulus. And he said it's conditional. Right? It's conditional because it's, it's conditional on the previous experience. It's conditional. Make sense? In fact, that's a great name, isn't it? He called it that. He said, these are called conditional reflexes. That's what he called the phenomenon. We call it, I said it in Russian. These are conditional reflexes. Or we could have, again, Sean Connery being a Russian. Conditional reflexes. It's a conditional, well, the book's called Conditioned Reflexes. By the way, it's a very cheap book because it's out of um, copyright. Um, and it was actually what was in copyright originally. It was in the, the Russian government was a Russian czar, and then, of course, they had a revolution in Russia. I think you were heard Soviet Union was around for a while. Anyway, so this got really cheap. You should pick up a copy of this book for, if you want to buy it, which, I mean, you really don't. It's so, so, it's great stuff, but it's really boring. Part of it is because, like, you can show the I bet you find it in the iBook store on the iPad for free, or the iPhone. Yeah, he called it conditional reflexes, which actually makes a great deal more sense. Why is this called conditioned reflexes? Because it was mistranslated, because it was written in Russian, and Pavlov didn't speak English. This wasn't now when all science is done in English. Doesn't matter what language you, you work in, when you write something up, if you don't learn up in English, no one's going to pay attention to it. That's just the way the world works now. Just the way it is. Right? People don't read stuff in languages other than English. In graduate school, uh, in fact, in a lot of places, when you go to, uh, in, in, in science, just other things, different. In, in science, in graduate school, a lot of times the classes are conducted in English even at, at French or German universities. Because they have to read in English. A friend of mine, uh, Sylvain, who uh, works at uh, University of Moncton at Edmondston, and he does everything in French, but he came and did his PhD at Laval in Quebec City, but 
He said they had a thing there where in grad school you could either take two extra courses or go do a, uh, six months working in someone's lab who was an anglophone. Just so you could do reading and writing. And he does it, all his work in French, but he publishes English. It wasn't like that. Right? So Pavlov didn't speak any, any, any English. And in fact, he comes over to North America back when, after this book is published uh, and gives lectures. Because this was a, this is a big thing. And he's got a translator. So think about how boring this class is already. Now throw in, I'm not even speaking the language you understand, and it's being translated by some dude. And people are going to see this. So it was a big deal. So I've got, I've got turn, that's what we call conditioning now. When we say condition, it should be conditional. It makes much more sense. But that's not what happened with this translation. I don't know any Russian except for words like Mikhailov, Trechiak, and a hockey player named Terrible. So I don't know, but it might be very simple to mistranslate conditional and conditioned, or it might just be the person who thought they were doing it. Oh, yeah, I can translate that for you. Uh, 50 bucks. So that's what they call it that. That's when we get the term conditioning. Alright. Questions so far? Okay. So there's some key terms here, we're gonna have to go through these so you understand these. There's an unconditioned stimulus. You will you have heard it in intro psych, it's always called the UCS. And I in all intro psych books on this, by the way. And past that, we don't use that. I don't know why that's done. When I teach intro, I say we call it US, but whatever. This is a biologically relevant stimulus, like meat powder, that without prior learning elicits an unconditional response, and you are. So the unconditioned stimulus is the meat powder, the unconditioned response is the salivation. Okay? The conditioned stimulus. Now, see how much more, more sense this would make if it was unconditional stimulus? It doesn't matter what prior learning is, it elicits an unconditional response. Stupid, stupid, stupid translator. Well, why couldn't the Pavlov just spoke English? <laughs> and that would be the jerk there on purpose, that's fine. A conditioned stimulus, or conditional things is a neutral stimulus, like a buzzer, that with many CSUS pairings leads to a conditioned response. Okay? These are easy to mix up. I think one of the reasons I don't like having that extra C in here is because it mixes it up with these. So I take those out. So you are US CSCR. By the way, you'll see me mess them up too. And don't feel bad if you mess them up now and then. Everybody messes it up now and then. Good. Okay. So this again, this would be the meat powder, the US, the UR would be the salivation, the CS is the buzzer, the CR is the salivation.
almost any reflex can be hooked up to a condition stimulus. So when people first started doing this work, they were trying all kinds of different things. And by the way, there are things you can do that you, like, you can condition heart rate in somebody. That's doable. People don't know it, you can, but you condition it. How do you think people that meditate slow themselves down to the point where they can they've conditioned themselves? It's, it's not magic. It's cool, but it's just learning. Today we don't use all these different preparations. There's a few that we concentrate on. So you guys, a lot of you guys are using class conditioning articles for your article review, and you'll see a few different ways that people have studied this uh, today. Um, there's eyelid conditioning, and I talked about that. That's when you have a CS that is uh, a, usually a tone, and then the US is a tone of air <coughs> towards the, the eye, and the blink. This happens with people. Uh, it's done well with rabbits as well. But it can be done very easily with people. People learn it very quickly, and it shows all the same sort of phenomena you would expect. Okay, this is hard this one, to understand. This might take the rest of the class to understand how CER works. We get what's called a conditioned emotional response. Or a CER. I don't like the name there because it, it I don't like the word emotional being in there, but what? Okay, how does this work? This is one that we'll, I'll talk about a lot of data that has CER in it, so I want to really make sure you understand it, and it's kind of complicated. So, with CER, the first thing you do is you train a rat, this is almost always done with rats, you train a rat to push a bar. And it pushes the bar, and you do it, and we haven't talked about skin and all that stuff yet, we won't for another month or so. But you train the rat to push the bar constantly. Push, 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 push. And you actually can look at the response rate, and you'll get a nice steady state of responding. So the animal has now learned that if it pushes the bar a lot, it gets food. And the animal can never really predict how many responses it has to do, so it just pushes, 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 pushes like crazy. So that's the first thing. It pushes a lot. That's not conditional emotional response. That's just allowing us to measure something. We're going to be able to measure the response, the bar press. So you always want something we can measure. Eye blink's great because we can actually can use video or it used to be film. You can measure when someone blinks their eye. Salivary conditioning is great because you actually measure the amount of saliva. How many milliliters of spit do you get? You can measure that. What we're going to measure here is the number of responses. So now we've done that. That's beautiful. We now have a rat that's steadily responding. Pushing the bar, he's getting his little noise pellets. N-O-Y-E-S, they're a company that makes food pellets. Push, 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 push. It's all going perfectly. And now is when it gets, well, you might think it's a little mean. Now what we're going to do is we're going to turn the light on, and as the light comes on, just after it comes on, we're going to shock the rat. That was our first album, which was called Shark the Rat. 
We're going to shock this poor rat. We're doing this for science. Not for fun. By the way, the shocks that rats get, as she does it aside, tell you that when you hook one of these up, the way that you typically see if the shock is enough is you put your hand in. And it's not like, ouch! It's not like that. It's enough that you can feel It's uncomfortable. Like you actually feel the, the current, but it's not like it hurts. The rat doesn't like it either, but it's not like it's, it's enough that it, it's going to kill it. You're not trying to ever really hurt the animal. You're trying to do something that's a little bit uncomfortable, okay? So you just turn the thing up, the shock generator, put your hand in it, turn it up this way. I always hook these things up. I used to run a learning lab class back in the grad school, and back in the 70s, we used to give all you guys rats and pigeons back in the old days. And I would hook it up, and I'd put my hand in it, and I'd go, okay, that's enough, but I felt it. That's, as long as I felt it. So it's not horribly, oppressively painful, but it is unpleasant. Like it's not fun. So you do that, light comes on, shock comes on. What's the rat going to do? Remember right now the rat's pushing the bar to get his food. What's he gonna do when the shock, when the floor gets electrified? It's gonna freeze. Yeah. Exactly. It's gonna freeze, he's gonna stop responding, or he's gonna respond less. Right? Well, the rat hasn't learned its lesson yet. Damn rats. So we're going to shock it again. But the line is a signal. And now, eventually, we get to a point where the rat levels off its responding. And what we measure here is we see how much the responding has dropped off when the light is on. And then we, we, yeah, the way we run, measure, can't even properly, the way we measure this is we look at the amount of responding during the light when there's no shock. These are probe trials, tests. And we compare that, we compare that to the amount of responding when there is no light. And then we do a ratio of the number of responses per unit time. You can do probably per, we've done that with unit time, there's 10 second dates, it doesn't really matter. Um, when the light is on versus when the light is off. If there are no responses when the light is off, and lots of responses when it doesn't have any, the light is on, we get what's called a suppression ratio of zero. We've completely suppressed responding. That's why I like calling it condition suppression. If we get a condition, a, a, a suppression ratio of one, the animal hasn't learned a thing when the light's on, right? Because it's responding the same amount when it's pushing the bar without the light as when it's pushing the bar with the light. So at that point, we have a suppression ratio of one, and we say that the animal hasn't learned a thing. So now the beautiful thing is here. We can have a whole bunch of rats, and it doesn't matter how much each rat responds, because some respond a little bit differently, we can standardize it across rats. Some people call this conditioned emotional response because the rat's scared from the light coming on because the light predicts a shock. Maybe it is, I don't know. I like something that's a little more about the operational definition, so I call it, I like calling it conditioned suppression. It doesn't really matter what you call it. I'll probably call it CDR a lot of times too, because it's called that a lot of literature. That's have emotions. They're anything like ours. 
problem with using that word, the word emotion, um, is that it makes you think of our emotion. I don't think subjective, I bet subjectively it seems, feels the same. You shouldn't be afraid for a rat as it does for a person. I'm not saying the rat enjoys it. Well, there probably are weird masochistic rats that like it, I don't know. There are weird rats, there are weird websites. Do you understand CER? You get less responding, which means you have more learning. CER is kind of hard to understand, so I want to make sure. You got this? Does it make sense? Are you sure? That's good. That's good. I taught this class about that. I taught this class to play Keo. I took those movies like a week ever since. Oh, I made it a joke. Wasn't every blame understood it just fine. So Eric is now a PhD student in Bruce Alberta. Who's yeah, anyway. We can use this SCR, skin conductivity response. This is how we can measure startup. Actually, it's one of the ways we can measure. Um, this is sort of what you can measure. Again, sort of fear kind of idea here in humans. You just put this is using a polygraph. It's all awesome. Just using a polygraph. Uh, you sweat a little bit more when you're frightened, when you have a, uh, a response like that, and you get a little bit more conductivity uh, in your skin. It's all nice. It's not fancy. This is actually a pretty nice one, because again, we get a number. We want something with a number. Right? How do we measure learning in this class? I give you a number at the end of the year that's based on how you perform some tests. They're measuring these service, right? That's, that's what it is. So we always want a number that we can use. Look at this, with the uh, habituation. We got a number, the amount of responding. Right? So we have, what we have here is a number, and that's the beauty of this. We can use taste aversion or food aversion. This we can measure, the beautiful thing about this is we can, this takes one trial. So we take a rat and we give it a food, give a, a novel food. We wait a couple of hours and we make the rat sick. There's a lot of ways I mentioned, of course, to make rats sick. You can use, they used to use radiation poisoning a lot. Not so much anymore. But you might get lithium chloride, that'll make you might get motion sickness, which you can do, as I said, by flipping around your hand. Or you can actually put them on like a turntable kind of apparatus and you spin around. That would make them sick somehow. And then the next day, how do you measure this? You give the rat a choice between two foods. That food that, it, that it, we hope it's associated with sickness and some other food. You see how much they eat one food or the other. Pretty simple. Really pretty simple. But again, we have numbers here. That's what we're looking for. We want to be able to quantify stuff. Okay. So those are the basic phenomena. You might see, you still see some salivary condition. It's pretty rare now that the does show up. Um, but typically you'll see CER used. It's very common because it just is so easy to use. 
Um, you also might see, and I didn't mention this here, if you're using pigeons or any bird, you'll actually see a keypad response being used. And I mentioned this earlier on in the course, that if, if I did a bird and I show it a light about the size of a, a loony, um, usually now on a computer touchscreen, I show it a light and about a few seconds in I give it some food, eventually the pigeon starts pecking the light. It doesn't have to peck the light, it doesn't make the food show up any more quickly, but it does start pecking the light. And then again, we can measure number of pecks. Again, we just want something we can measure. We just want something we can measure. We don't want any qualitative data. Well, I think the animal learned something. It's like getting us anywhere. So, when Pavlov first discovered this phenomenon, he was like, how does this work? Well, Pavlov figured that there, what was happening was that the brain, in essence, was being rewired. He called it stimulus substitution. When he said that, for all we know, he called it Eddie Van Halen, but the guy translated it as stimulus substitution. I bet we called it Eddie Van Halen. So he said that there were centers in the brain, again, remember, this is a long time ago. We would now look at this and go, well, that's stupid. But you didn't win any Nobel Prizes and neither did I. So let's not make Pavlov stupid. Let's think that this isn't a bad way of thinking when you don't know really anything about neuroscience because there wasn't any neuroscience yet. Okay? So we can sit here and giggle about how wrong he was and no one showed a picture of us on the PowerPoint slide in 20 years either. Unless one of you goes on some kind of spree of some sort. So he said there's a center for the US, like for meat powder. There's the dog is meat powder center in the Dog is buzzer center in the Meat powder center, that's cool. So why the center? With many pairings, buzzer center also attached to meat powder center. So two, two, I'm sorry, well, now I'm going to like, screw it up, I can't do accident anymore. So now the meat powder, uh, the buzzer center now is now hooked up to the salivation center. So it's stimulus substitution. That's not bad, you know? Think about it. That kind of works, doesn't it? It makes some sense. Doesn't it? Right? I mean, it's, again, remember, we don't know any of neuroscience or nothing. It's the early 1900s. There's Bolsheviks everywhere. You're living in Russia. That's not bad. It's almost certainly wrong, but it's really not bad. It, it makes some sense. And you can think... Theoretically, I want to think of it this way, but you can think about that if that helps you understand it, and good for Pavlov. The problem here is that the CR, the conditioned response, is not always the same as the unconditioned response. Right? The conditioned response is not the same as the unconditioned response. So, the conditioned response to, I talked about this, to heroin, is that your body, in essence, gets ready for heroin. It's actually the opposite of the effect of the heroin. So if it was actually one stimulus substituting its connection um, for the stimulus, uh, if the CS-US connection is now going to be 
a U.S. sorry, CSU. Yeah, I should run the board. So what Pavlov is saying, or once saying, because he's dead now, is that we have a connection between the U.S. and the U.R. Right? And then he's saying what happens here is the CS now also connects to the U.R. Okay? That's what Pavlov is saying. The, 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 the U.S. and the U.R. Are, so the U.R. and the C.R. are the same thing. One's just a weaker version of the other because the connection is strong because it's not, it's a conditional, as Pavlov will say, response, or we'd say today, conditioned response. It's not an unconditional or unconditioned, as we would say today, response because it's not built in. The problem here arises when the CR is, is in fact in the opposite direction of the UR, which happens a lot in drug conditioning. Now, Pavlov couldn't have known this. Right? Pavlov couldn't have known this, so fine. There's, no, there's a notion here called sign tracking that takes the idea of the of this replacing this into a camp. And that's sign tracking is about the pecking the key, because you're you're picking you're 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 pecking at the stimulus. And you're saying that the unconditioned stimulus is in a way taking the place of the unconditioned response. We talk about sign tracking, that's the idea of pecking at a key, for example. Or uh, with rabbits. Um, and you use the heat lamp as an unconditioned stimulus, they'll actually nuzzle up against light bulbs. Or against a signal that signifies heat that isn't even a light bulb. And if you have a speaker that makes a noise when the heat comes on, they'll nuzzle up against and cut up against this speaker. Even though the speaker's not making any heat at all. So what they're doing is they're tracking the sign. It's called sign tracking. So it's really kind of the CS replacing the US here. These are early ideas. And again, they don't sound that bad until look at that. It's weak but intuitively pleasing, like so many things that people say. <laughs> it's weak theoretically, but it makes a lot of intuitive sense, doesn't it? That's what's happening. I can see why Pavlov thought this. It makes sense. That must be what's happening. It's wrong, but that must be what's happening. This, in fact, was the only comment on my PhD thesis. It's weak, but intuitively pleasing. No, it wasn't. That was a joke. Not much of one. I think. Stopping when we talk about early theoretical ideas before we talk about perhaps physiology is a good idea. So we'll uh, hack for today and we'll continue talking about this stuff on Thanks, guys. So I'm sure maybe I'm wrong, but it's already been. And I feel like I'm cracking up. Whoa. And I feel like I'm backing up. Whoa. But I know I shouldn't stress, cause it's already so right, so okay. We're gonna 
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.